Well, amen, right? That's good. And uh, David Tyree, that catch is known by some as being uh, the greatest catch in Super Bowl history. But you can see from his testimony that even though he had notoriety, even though he had money, he just did not find out what true greatness was by the things that he was really achieving in life. You know, all of us, I think, come to a point in our life that we want to be great. Some people achieve it. Some people daydream of it. Some people dream at night about it. And some people just are after it all the time, but never really seem uh, to reach it. And when we define greatness, we often define it as something that we do something exceptional and we accomplish something exceptional that other people would look upon us as something really special. Well, David Tyree had a defining moment in his life when he realized what true greatness was and how to find it. Well, you know, we're, again, preoccupied with this. I hear it all the time on the sports programs. Who's the goat? Anybody ever heard that expression before, the goat? Anybody? You know, it used to be, when, when I was growing up, the goat was a guy in the World Series that made the error. You know, he's the Bill Buckner or whatever that made the error, and he blew the game. But the goat today stands for the greatest of all time. And a lot of people think, well, that's Tom Brady, right? I mean, t- uh, as far as quarterback goes, after all, he's won the most Super Bowls. And, you know, it's really, when you think about it, think about it for just a moment. How many, how many of you really think Tom Brady was the greatest quarterback of all time? Raise your hand. I mean, come on, we're going to vote a little bit. All right? Don't be afraid. All right, how many of you maybe think it's somebody else? Raise your hand. I didn't ask you to clap, but. All right, here's the point I was just making with that. It's an opinion. It's always an opinion. So you, you think you're going to be great, but yet what we're really saying is I want to be great in the eyes of other people. I want to be looked upon as something exceptional, famous, rich. And, and we think about all this accomplishment that we can do, but it's always a matter of opinion. Well, we think to ourselves, the disciples certainly were not that way. They were humble. They were wanting the, the greatness of God, the greatness of Christ. But yet, as we pick up this story in looking at defining moments, and by the way, the defining moment is a time in your life where you discover something new and afresh to you that causes you to redefine who you are and how you live your life. Well, we, we look at this passage and we find out in Matthew chapter 17 that they just came out of the mount, what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. That's when Elijah and Moses appeared before Jesus from heaven, and the three, three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, were sitting around, and they were, they were looking at all this. Now, you can imagine nothing like this has ever happened in history. Nothing like this has certainly ever happened to them. And so on the heels of that, Jesus teaches all the disciples once again that he would go to the cross, die on the cross for their sins, and be resurrected on the third day. Now, we think to ourselves, what is the one question the disciples must have had? I mean, they they see two people coming down from heaven, and then Jesus talks about heaven. He's going to go back up into heaven during the resurrection. What question would you ask? Well, you know, I'd ask about forgiveness at the cross. I'd ask about how you're going to be raised from the dead. Well, let's look at it. Chapter 18, verse 1, he says this. At that time, how do we know this came right after all those great things that happened? At that time, this is it. This is the one question they had burning upon their soul and heart. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's it. Now, Jesus first introduced this whole idea, really. In Matthew eleven eleven. he said, among all the people born of women, nobody is greater on this earth than John the Baptist, but he's least in the kingdom of heaven. 
And so the disciples were excited. They had just fed 5,000, another 4,000, all the healings that were taking place, 25, maybe 30,000, maybe more people than that were gathered around. They were following the disciples everywhere they went and following Jesus, of course. And they were thinking, okay, a kingdom's coming. Any kingdom have, has the people at the top, people at the bottom. Who's going to be at the top? Is it going to be me? We, we looked at Mark chapter 9, and we find out they were fighting over that. Who's going to sit at your right hand? Who's going to sit at your left hand? They were always ambitious. They always wanted to know who is the greatest. And if we were to be honest with ourselves, no matter what our area of interest in, we want to be known as one of the best. There are people that are suffering today with their own self-esteem problems and own, own, own defeat and maybe even suicidal tendencies because they've always wanted to be the best singer, ball player, uh, engineer, doctor, lawyer, something. And they were just not the greatest. And really, it's all opinion anyway. In Matthew chapter 18, we find the key to becoming great in the eyes of God. Really great. And what is that? It's just really humility. The same thing that saves us is the same thing that carries us through the Christian life. The Bible says that we need to humble ourselves to the cross in order to be saved. It talks about this a little bit here in this passage. We come to the cross, we're humble before God, we invite Jesus into our heart, nothing we can do to save ourselves. But the Bible says in Colossians 2, 6, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And so we find the key to the Christian life, is the, we, we find it in the key to salvation. And that is a humble heart at the cross, knowing we can do nothing to really save ourselves. So how does this apply to the Christian life? How does it apply to our passage? How can we become great in the eyes of God? Well, first of all, I want us to look at the first few verses here and discover that God saves the humble, and then God rescues the saved. God secures then the rescued in this passage in these 14 verses. Verses 1 through 4 talks about uh, God saves the humble. Again, it says at that time, it says, who is the, they ask the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, same thing. In the book of Matthew, again, he mentions the kingdom of heaven because they didn't want to mention the name of God when they didn't have to. It was sort of looked upon as a, as a sacred thing, and so don't, don't bother that to it. So they called it the kingdom of heaven, and this kingdom uh, implies God's rule. So it's really the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is anything uh, that God rules, anywhere God rules, whenever God rules. And so it's not only in heaven, but it's also here on earth as well. Now, the world's definition of greatness, world's definition of greatness is always something that you achieve, something that you do, something that, you know, that uh, you, uh, you strive out in the world to gain notoriety for the things that you accomplish in life, whether it's in sports, whether it's in entertainment, uh, in business, in the business world, being a doctor, being an educator, looked upon as someone really special because of the knowledge that you might have with the athletic ability that you might possess. And so as we're looking at this, we find that that's just simply not true. We can only find in the Bible, look at Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon back in the book of Daniel. He had it all. I mean, he was the most powerful man in the world, but yet he was haunted by his dreams. That's the reason Daniel came on the scene. The, the man was having nightmares, and Daniel came on the scene to interpret his dreams. We look at Solomon of the Old Testament. He had it all. I mean, he, he, he really he tried possessions. He tried uh, education. He tried prosperity. He tried everything, everything. 
under the sun, it says, and nothing satisfied him. We achieve, we want to do something. The problem is John, that great theologian, Johnny Cash of old, um, once said the definition of success is the same as the de- definition of a nervous breakdown. And that's probably true. But here we're trying to do anything that we can really do. But here's what Jesus said. He says, whoever's the greatest kingdom of heaven, and calling a child, he put him in the midst of them. And they said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now here it says the most, more humble you are, the greater you're going to be in the kingdom of heaven. Well, how does that work out? When you and I invite Jesus to come into our heart, we're coming to the cross and we're saying, God, there's nothing I can do to save myself. There's just no possibility. There's nothing I can do, nothing I can accomplish, nothing I can work for, nothing I can, can, can really accomplish and do in life that is going get to me, get me salvation. Jesus Christ did everything for me on the cross, and now I must submit to him as the Lord of my life. And that's how a person comes to know Christ. And he says, now, if you're going to, apply, going to apply this further in the Christian life, you would say that it's also extremely important, in fact, crucial, if we're going to be great, to humble ourselves even as believers in Christ. Now, what is a child like? Well, a baby is uh, selfish. Well, that's not what he's talking about here. Uh, breaks down the analogy there. Uh, they're, they're very self-centered. They, they cry about everything. It's not it at all. He's saying this. He's taking a little child and maybe he's sitting down, and the child is maybe sitting on his lap or maybe on the, on the floor, and he says, look, if you're going to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you've got to be like this little child. And they begin to understand as he began to explain it exactly what he meant. The child is very, very dependent upon adults. Can't do anything for himself. You look at the animal kingdom, and you will find many animals that once they're born, Maybe they're nursed a little bit and they're kicked out of the nest, so to speak. They can, kinda, they can almost operate on their own. And some of them can operate on their own even right after they're born, not with a human being. There's no way a baby can survive. You, know, you hear, you know, you see all the Tarzan movies or whatever, a little baby out in the jungle and he survives. Into, that, you, you know that's a fiction story, right? It's not true. Even when they give the guy a name, you know, in the latest ones. You know, they, it's just not true. You cannot really do that. You can't survive in the jungle on your own. A baby, maybe more than any other uh, species in, ever been created, a human baby needs the adults around them, needs the parents around them. They're very dependent, and, and they're very trusting, and they're very humble. They know they need help. They're the ones reaching up to you as a parent or grandparent. They're the ones that are asking you for things constantly, over and over and over. You know, you know what I'm saying. And they're constantly asking because they cannot do it on their own. Now, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is then in, you might get it, put it this way, he's infused with the greatness of God. And the more humble you are before God, the more infused with the greatness of God that you will become in this life. And here we find that even, you might say, it's, it's kind of a team effort. He's not just talking to one individual. He's not saying, Peter, come on over here. I want to talk to you about being great in the kingdom of heaven. He's really talking to the whole crowd, 
And so he's not only talking to each individual, but he's talking to the crowd. He's talking to it as a team. After all, why? Uh, has anybody ever heard of a quarterback, we'll say by the name of, uh, trying to pick one out, Dan Marino? Anybody ever heard of that? Heard of that guy? He set all kinds of passing records, but nobody ever talks about him being the goat of a quarterback. No, it's always Tom Brady, or most of the time. Somebody really rebuked me after the first service and said, what about Brett Favre? Well, you can name a lot of different um, people. Terry Bradshaw, take Joe Montana, for example. Joe Montana, four Super Bowl, he won four Super Bowls, but then the backup quarterback, Steve Young, took over for him after he got traded to Kansas City, and he won a Super Bowl. Wow, two great, great quarterbacks on the same team. When I was growing up, a guy by the name of Johnny Unitas was considered the greatest quarterback of all time. But he's not even mentioned today. Why? He didn't win a Super Bowl. You know, you're judged by how many Super Bowls you are win now. That's the opinion of people. And it's all about an opinion. Somebody says, no, the greatest quarterback is somebody who's passed the most yards, had the best completion, uh, or had the fewest interceptions, or done this, or done... No, 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 he won how many Super Bowls. It's all a matter of opinion. But I would say this. Tom Brady won six or seven or eight or ten Super Bowls, whatever he's won. He had a great team with him. Unlike, if I can say this to Miami Dolphin fans, sorry, but Dan Marino did not. He just didn't have a defense to go along with his offense. He's saying, look, you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven. You not only need to think about doing this for yourself, but I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you about a church. I'm talking to you about a group of people that need to do the greatness together. He says, if you're going to do that, you've got to humble yourself. Now, look, all throughout this passage or the book of Matthew, he mentions all this. Look in verse 3. He says, uh, come to a little child, must, uh, verse 3, must turn. This is the word repentance. Repentance is all about humility. God, I've done something wrong. I want to get forgiveness for it. Look, uh, also he talks about faith in this book. Remember when he talks to the lady of, of Peter about how little faith he had when he was walking on the water. Well, it's more than I had. I've never walked on water before. But then the Syrophoenician woman had great faith. How do you have great faith? Well, you submit to the Lord, and it takes humility. Meekness takes humility. Following God, you know, that's what it's really all about, isn't it? That's why we talk about in preschool, you want to teach our preschoolers to love Jesus. And children ministry, we want to teach them to know Jesus. And youth ministry, how to trust Jesus. And finally, the result of that, as an adult, how to follow Jesus. It's all about what you do with your life based on what you believe. If you're not, if you're not changed with your life, then you're not changed in your heart. It says this, not everyone who says to me, Jesus said, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And finally, the, the whole confessing thing. Confessing Christ. And we'll get to that. Oh, we got to that in, in Matthew 10. I talked about that. Even that takes humility, doesn't it? Doesn't it take humility to come forward for baptism? Everything about this in one word. It's humility. It's about following the Lord intentionally. That's humility, and that's the key to being great. That's the defining moment. S.I. McMillan, in his book, None of These Diseases, talked about a, a firm that was interviewing people for a job, and they always asked the same question at the end, uh, do you feel like you're a leader? 
Do you feel like you're a leader? And everyone always asks, oh, of course I am. Yes, I am a leader. I am a leader. One person one time said, no, I would not say that I'm a leader at all. And they hired that person on the spot. And you say, why? And they explain, we have 1,452 leaders. We need one follower in our organization, <laughs> you know? So you think about it. How, how can you do that? You follow Jesus Christ in your heart. And, and I know that, you know, I've thought through this, banged around my mind a little bit. And the question may come up in your mind and has probably, as I preached about taking your hands off of your own life and allowing Christ to infuse your life with power as you come to the cross and follow him. And you think, why should I do that? I mean, I know there are people here that hear that and they think, why in the world would I want to do that? You hear it all the time. You hear it on, you hear it among your friends. You hear it on television, maybe the movies. You read it in books. And, and here's the storyline. I've lived for everybody else all my life. Now I'm going to live for me. I'm going to make my own decisions. I'm going to be the master of my own fate, my own soul. I don't want anyone telling me what to do. And there's the storyline. There, there's how it goes. Now, what you're saying, Pastor, is just the opposite. We ought to take our hands of our own life, give your heart and your life to Jesus Christ, humble yourself before him, and do what he asks you to do or tells you to do. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So that, that's, that's crazy. Oh, is it? Let me ask you something. Let me ask you, you know, we got a lot of young people over here, and, and, and so, some of you are young, sprinkled all throughout. I'm not trying to tell you you're old. You know, that was the last service, you know. You're young. Everybody here, young. You're very young. And uh, I'm the oldest guy probably in the room. But here's the thing, okay, you're, here's a young lady, and she's in love with this guy, and she's going she's gonna to marry him. But the old boyfriend now comes back. Well, she loves him too. And she thinks, I just cannot. I mean, this sounds like a Lifetime movie, I know, but just cannot decide on which one to go with. I mean, you love them both. You know, what's the future going to be like? Finally, you think, it's really the old boyfriend. I just, I've just got to take him. Well, I told you this is a fictitious story. But your, your dad comes along and just says, uh, you, you got to marry the new guy. Why? You don't even like him. You like the other guy, but no, but you need to marry this guy. I know. Well, how do you know? He pulls out an envelope. He pulls out an envelope. He says, look, this is a sealed envelope. Do not open this envelope until tomorrow. Promise me you'll do that. Okay, fine. So next morning, she opens up the envelope, pulls it out, and it's a, it's a computer readout of of baseball scores, of all things. She's not even interested in baseball. But she goes on the internet, and she finds out that these were the scores of today's games, but her dad knew about what the scores were going to be a day before. She says, how did you know that? She says, I've been to the future. Me and Marty McFly. <laughs> you know, and that DeLorean. I've been in the DeLorean. I've been to the future. I know What's gonna, and if you marry your old boyfriend, it's going to be c catastrophic. If you marry the new guy, with my help, <laughs> you know, you'll, be, you'll be good. No, really, you'll be good. It'll be a good marriage, good life. Now you've got a choice. You say, yeah, but you know, I really like the old guy. 
No, like the old guy. I'm going to marry the old guy. I don't think my, my dad knows what he's talking about. Okay, well, then he does it again, and more scores, and, and stocks, and, and boy, that, my dad just knows the future. He knows it. I got to find that DeLorean. He knows the future. Now, let me ask you something, really, realistically. I know that's a, that's a weird story, but if you knew your dad knew the future and he told you what to do, wouldn't you do it? Assuming your dad loves you. That's a stretch for some, maybe, but you know, I think not really for most, right? You would do it. How many of you would do that? Raise your hand. See, most of you here understand then where I'm coming from. I don't know what the future holds. I mean, one guess is, your guess is as good as mine. I, I, I can look at it, evaluate it, pros and cons, just like anybody else does in the leadership books. But my Father in heaven knows the future. And I know that he knows the future. Because he had prophecies of the Old Testament that have been fulfilled in the New Testament. He has prophecies in the New Testament that are now being filled today, looking at the second coming of Christ, what we'll be looking at in just a few weeks. But the second coming of Christ, I can see it. I can, he knows the future. So why in the world would I I'd be so foolish not to give him my heart and say, well, God, okay, God, what do you want me to do? It makes all the sense in the world to humble ourselves before God and give our heart and life to him, taking our hands off of our own life. But I want you to notice something. He's just not talking here about salvation. Again, he's talking about a little child going wayward as well as getting saved. Look in verse five, as we look at God rescues the saved. Whoever receives one child in my name receives me. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. It's pretty serious stuff. You cause one of these little ones to stumble. Notice it says in verse 7, Woe, that's impending judgment unless you repent, to the world for, for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And here's something about temptation. It's going to come, even as a Christian believer. At this point, he's sitting there talking to the, the children, talking to the, the people about the children. Maybe by this time, the little child's sitting up on his lap, and he's saying, he's pointing to the child. He says, woe if anyone causes this little one to stumble. Is he talking about a baby? He's talking about an eight-year-old. No, he's talking about a Christian believer. This is an analogy here that he's grabbing. He says, woe be it unto you who would cause. Here's, here's one of my children who've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you cause them to sin, that could be in false doctrine. It could be. I mean, I'm amazed that people who believe false doctrine are just so anxious. I mean, enamored with getting people to believe what they believe. Why is that? Because it affirms what they believe. But not only that, but a person who does that or a person who draws you into a, a, a lustful situation, a person who draws you into a situation that would, would make you stumble in some way, somehow, is really saying, I'm important. I'm more important than you. They are more prideful because they feel like not only are they going to go their own way, but what they believe is my way is the right way and I want to take other people along with me. It's a deeper form of pride in their life. 
I know the way to pleasure, they say. I know the way to happiness. I know the way to fulfillment. I know the way to greater knowledge and prosperity. And yet we stumble over them. Why do we stumble over them? It means, this word, is to cause to fall. The young Christian falls. Why? Because they're taught the wrong things. They're taught things that are going to hurt them. But he says in this passage, he says, woe to you. Woe to you. Charles Spurgeon says, think lightly of hell and soon you will think lightly of, about the cross. Notice what he says here. He says in verse eight, and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the fire. Let me say this. Jesus is in no way saying that if you mutilate your body, it's going to take care of sin. Sin has really nothing to do with the body. It does, but it doesn't. It's not the cause of it. You, you can be totally paralyzed from the neck down and still sin. So what's he saying? He's saying, look, if you sin, even if someone causes you to stumble or you are the stumbler, you are the one that causes people to stumble, then it's going to take a deep surgical type of repentance in your life to bring you back where you belong, and that's what you need to do. The Bible says only God can grant repentance. Have you ever had this to happen to your life where you've sinned a little bit and sinned a little bit and you've done a little bit? Oh, it's not that bad. I mean, after all, it's pretty socially acceptable maybe. And you don't repent. But you say, nope, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm just not going to do it anymore. But you do it. There's no real repentance. There's no surgical repentance of the heart that says, I'm, I'm going to, to surgically remove this radically from my heart in repentance. Listen, we never get beyond forgiveness. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. We never get beyond forgiveness. And here we find in this passage, Jesus is saying, look, just like the little child, you, you don't want to cause them to stumble, but if you do, radical repentance will get you where you need to go because the humility of the heart. Are you having a defining moment yet? Well, let's look at the last little group of verses here in verse 10. It says, God secures. We believe that God secures the rescued. See to it. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. What does that mean, despise? Well, it talks about looking down on someone. Isn't that the whole basis to pride? A lack of humility in our heart, really, when you think about it. I want to think of myself better than the next guy. I'm smarter. I'm the smartest guy in the room. I'm the most athletic guy in the school. I'm the best singer in the church. I'm best preacher in the convention. Best, best, best. And you begin, you, you begin to compare and you look down on someone else. Now, I, I believe in competition. The Bible believes, talks about competition, but the competition is this. I compare myself maybe to another pastor because they're doing so much better than me because I'm looking at them, I'm thinking, how can I improve? How can I make myself better? You look at another golfer, another singer, how can I, how can I improve? What lessons can I take? And you compare in that way, but you never compare to say, I'm better than that other person, or I'm not as good as that person, I never will be. 
and therefore it hurts your self-esteem. If that is the problem, then you're not great. You haven't come to the point of greatness in your life, that defining moment in your life where you realize that you're not the center of the universe, but you could be sometimes God's center of his universe. We look. He says, don't despise. He says, even the angels. For I tell you that in heaven, the angels also see the face of my Father who is in heaven. This word see means continually. They're continually looking at the face of Jesus. Wow, you think about that for just a moment. They keep their eyes on Jesus all the time. Don't you remember the story of Peter walking on the water? As long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, he was good. He took his eyes off Jesus, he began to sink. Always keeping. How how would the angels in heaven become so humble and stay so humble before the Lord, recognizing who he is? They always keep their eyes on him. Verse 12, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 of the mountains and go and search for the one that went away? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now this word perish, just take from the last and go back up, but the word perish, most of the time in the Bible would indicate that you've lost something. In other words, you are like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. That is, go to hell, not get forgiveness. But in this passage, this word perish simply means destruction. And it talks here more about the destruction of a life of someone who's already a believer. And it's talking about a believer going astray and wasting their life. Going into an area of life that's destructive to their own life. And he says this way. He says, in verse 13, he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. Say, Pastor, everything this passage has just taught us really is contradicted by this one verse. What you're saying is we are not the center of the universe. We have to humble ourselves before God and allow Christ to infuse the power and worth of God in our life. We just can't simply do it on our own. And yet it says right here, God is comparing and he's saying, you're, you're worth more than 99 other people. Well, let's look up then in verse 12. If a man has 100 sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that went astray. 99 verses 1. Well, the analogy of the comparison of the parable here, a shepherd has 100 sheep, and he's lost one of the sheep. Each one of those sheep are named. He knows exa- know exactly which one was lost. And he goes after the one and rejoices over the one that has been rescued. So, well, that that means, man, I've got more worth than my neighbor. Uh, That means that I'm more important. There was a, uh, back in 1987, there was a situation where a toddler was trapped in a well shaft in West Texas. 
If you're old enough, you maybe remember the story, otherwise maybe you've read it. It was a national news story. And every day for three days, they would show these uh, different people, firemen and everyone else, just digging and digging and digging. And they would excavate to the side and, and go through the pipe and try to, for three days, they tried to get this young girl out of that pipe until they succeeded. And all the world, at least in the United States, were just rejoicing with it. Cards and letters and gifts were coming in to this young lady, young girl and their family. You say, well, you know, there, there you have it right there. She was, no cards and letters were coming in to my kids. No, she was just as important as the other 99. But she had a particular need at that particular time that caused those rescuers to go in and get her out of that pipe. So you and I go through life and we're not the center of the universe. But when we go through something tough, we become the center of his universe. And God comes to our rescue and God helps us just like he helped the young lady through the shaft. There's sin in your life and you've got to get repentance of that. There's a problem with humility in your life. There's a self-esteem issue in your life. You're going through all kinds of different things with your family in your life. And God says, you are special. And I'm going to come and I'm going to rescue you. And you say, well, pastor, it just seems like I wait and I wait and I wait. And I'm not, I know I shouldn't want to be great. So I need to humble myself before the cross and just say, God, God, would you help me? Would you help me to become the person I need to be? Would, would you radically bring repentance in my life? But I also want to help. I want my life to count. When's it going to count? When's it going to come? Well, it comes, first of all, when you do humble yourself before the Lord. When you do say, and, and, and hear me right, when you say in your heart in a finding moment, you know, I've reached the point in my life to say the most important thing in my life is Jesus. The most important thing in my life is to grow in him. Everything else pales in comparison. That is the defining moment that he's talking about here. And yet, we know there's waiting involved. I heard a little story uh, actually on radio uh, yesterday, and a pastor was telling the story. I don't know his name. Sorry, so don't know his name. It was on Z88. And he told the story, a little illustration about the tra trapeze artists. Have you ever seen the, the trapeze, maybe Circus Olay or, or a regular circus? You know, they, they come, they, they turn all the flips, and then they're caught by their partner. But he says this, he said, when you're in a tra trapeze situation and you're the one that's swinging, we'll call him the swinger, all right? I don't know what they're called. The swinger goes back and forth and lets go and begins to flip. You begin to arc your back and hold out your arms and you just rest. You do nothing. You don't move your arms. You don't try to catch the catcher. You just trust the catcher. And when the timing's right, the catcher comes along and strong hands grabs you and you begin to swing together. The artist never tries to catch the catcher, but just trusts the catcher. 
And so as you come before the Lord today, you can say, well, I've tried. I've tried to be saved. I've tried to do the right thing. You just need to let go. And at this point, you've waited. Now it's time to trust. Trust him to catch you. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.